The book of Judges. So remember, after Joshua led the tribes of Israel into the promised land, he called them to be faithful to their covenant with God by obeying the commands of the Torah. And if they do this, they will show all the other nations what God is like. So Judges begins with the death of Joshua and basically tells the story of Israel's total failure. The book's name comes from the type of leaders Israel had in this period. Before they had any kings, the tribes were all governed by these judges. Now, don't think of a courtroom. These were regional political military leaders, more like a tribal chieftain. And you need to be warned, the book of Judges is very disturbing and violent. It tells the tragic tale of Israel's moral corruption, of its bad leadership, and basically how they become no different than the Canaanites. But this sad story is also meant to generate hope for the future. And you can see this in how the book's designed. There's a large introduction that sets the stage for Israel's failure as they don't drive out the remaining Canaanites. Then the large main section of the book has stories about the growing corruption of Israel's judges. And the progression here shows how Israel's leaders go from pretty good to okay to bad to worse. The concluding section is really disturbing and shows the corruption of the people of Israel as a whole. So let's dive in and we can explore each part a bit more. The opening section begins with the tribes of Israel in their territories in the Promised Land. And while Joshua defeated some key Canaanite towns, there was still a lot of land to be taken and lots of Canaanites living in those areas. And so chapter 1 gives a long list of Canaanite groups and towns that Israel just failed to drive out from the land. Now, remember, the whole point of driving out the Canaanites was to avoid their moral corruption and their way of worshiping the gods through child sacrifice. God had called Israel to be a holy people, and that does not happen. Chapter 2 describes how Israel just moved in alongside the Canaanites and adopted all their cultural and religious practices. And it's right here that the story stops. For nearly a whole chapter, the narrator gives us an overview of everything that's about to happen in the body of the book. This part of Israel's history, the narrator says, was a series of cycles moving in a downward spiral. So Israel became like the Canaanites, and so they would sin against God. So God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites, and eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. So God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, from among Israel who would defeat the enemy and bring about an era of peace. But eventually Israel would sin again, and it would all start over. This cycle provides the literary design and flow for the next main section of the book. It gets repeated for each of the six main judges whose stories are told here. Now, the stories of the first three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah, they are epic adventures. They're also extremely bloody stories. Either the judge themselves or people who help the judge, they defeat their enemies and deliver the people of Israel. The stories about the next three judges are longer, and they focus in on the character flaws of the judges, which get increasingly worse. So Gideon, he begins pretty well. He's a coward of a man, but he eventually comes to trust that God can save Israel through him. And so he defeats a huge army of Midianites with only 300 men carrying torches and clay pots. But Gideon has a nasty temper, and he murders a bunch of fellow Israelites for not helping him in his battle. And then it all goes downhill from there. He makes an idol from the gold that he won in his battles. And then after he dies, all Israel worships the idol as a god, and the cycle begins again. 
The next main judge is Jephthah, who's something of a mafia thug living up in the hills. And when things get really bad for Israel, the elders come to him begging for his help. And Jephthah was a very effective leader. He won lots of battles against the Ammonites, but he was so unfamiliar with the God of Israel, he treats him like a Canaanite God. He vows to sacrifice his daughter if he wins the battle. This tragic story, it shows just how far Israel has fallen. They no longer know the character of their own God, which leads to murder and to false worship. The last judge, Samson, is by far the worst. His life began full of promise, but he has no regard for the God of Israel. He was promiscuous, violent, and arrogant. He did win brutally strategic victories over the Philistines, but only at the expense of his own integrity, and his life ends in a violent rush of mass murder. Now, a quick note here. You'll notice a repeated theme in the main section of the book, that at key moments, God's Spirit will empower each of these judges to accomplish these great acts of deliverance. Now, the fact that God uses these really screwed up people doesn't mean he endorses all or even any of their decisions. God is committed first and foremost to saving his people, but all he has to work with is these corrupt leaders. And so work with them he does. This whole section is designed to show just how bad things have gotten. You can't even tell the Israelites and the Canaanites apart anymore, and that's just the leaders. The final section shows Israel as a whole hitting bottom. There are two tragic stories here, and they are not for the faint of heart. They're structured by this key line that gets repeated four times at the close of the book. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The first story is about an Israelite named Micah who builds a private temple to an idol, and that gets plundered by a private army sent from the tribe of Dan. So they come and they steal everything, and then they go and burn down the peaceful city of Laish and murder all of its inhabitants. It's a horrifying story. When Israel forgets its God, might makes right. The final story of the book is even worse. It's a shocking tale of sexual abuse and violence, which all leads to Israel's first civil war. It's very disturbing. And that's the point. These stories are meant to serve as a warning. Israel's descent into self-destruction is the result of turning away from the God who loves them and saved them out of slavery in Egypt. And now Israel needs to be delivered again from themselves. The only glimmer of hope in this story is found in this repeated line in the last part of the book. It actually forms the last sentence of the story. Israel has no king. And so the stage is set for the following books to tell the origins of King David's family, the book of Ruth, and also the origins of kingship itself in Israel, the book of 1 Samuel. But the story of Judges has value as a tragedy. It's a sobering explanation of the human condition, and ultimately it points out the need for God's grace to send a king who will rescue his people. And that's the book of Judges. I thought that would be a worthwhile review of everything we've looked at together in the last three months in the book of Judges. 
Uh, it's been an interesting study, and I think we've learned a lot about uh, both human nature and who our God is and His faithfulness and His amazing grace. And uh, we're going to see those things again today as we come to the conclusion of the book of Judges, uh, chapters 19 through 21. I'm going to invite you to join me in a quick word of prayer, and let's ask God's blessing as we look to His Word again and the lessons that He has for us in this final section of this book. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word that you have given us to lead and guide us and instruct us. We pray, Lord, that we might learn the, the lessons that you intend to teach us uh, through this book. I, as we've seen so often, God, your way leads to life and abundance, and yet so often our hearts are prone to stray and wander. And, and, uh, and Lord, I pray that we've learned those lessons this, this series. I pray we would learn them again this morning and that these lessons would inspire us to stay faithful in our walk with you, to keep our eyes on you, our hope in you, and to follow you faithfully and obediently. We pray that you bless our time now, Lord, as we look to your word and consider this last powerful and important story. Uh, help us, God, as we discern your truths here, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, my brother and I had the opportunity uh, to travel to Cannon Beach, Oregon, where uh, we were teaching at Ecola Bible College. This is an annual trip that we do. We've been teaching there for probably close to 15 years now. Uh, great Bible College. It's a one- or two-year program for, for young people who are desiring to dig into the Word and just you know, grow in their faith. And uh, one of the things that we did this year on one of our afternoons that we had some free time, uh, we went to a place, uh, we took a two-mile hike to a place called Devil's Cauldron. And uh, yes, uh, I mean, what are a couple pastors doing going to Devil's Cauldron? You could probably wonder, but uh, we, we heard about this beautiful spot that you can hike to on the Oregon coast, and uh, so we hiked two miles down the side of this mountain, and we came to this notch in the cliffside called Devil's Cauldron. And uh, it was a fairly calm day in the ocean that day, but you can imagine when the waves start uh, battering the shoreline pretty intensely, that little cauldron area there just begins to get frothed up with waves and the waters turning and tossing. And, and, and it's just a spectacular place. We're literally standing, I mean, no more than probably 10 feet from the cliff's edge here, and it is a straight drop down, 200 feet down into the ocean below us. What you can't see here in the picture is right behind me and below me, there is a metal fence, a metal wire fence that runs around this whole area to, to warn people. People have tragically died there over the years getting too close to the cliff's edge. And this metal fence has been placed there by the state of Oregon, and there is a, a warning sign attached to the metal fence that says, Caution, do not cross. And it's interesting, as we were standing there taking pictures and looking around, I noticed about 20 feet from where I'm standing, there was one of these scraggly dead trees on the side of the cliff. And at the base of this tree, there was a white wooden cross. It was a memorial to a young man who just two years ago had lost his life, crossing that fence, playing on the edge of the cliff, and it gave way and he fell 200 feet to his death. I discovered after that that was only one of many such incidents where people have lost their lives. Some of them, their bodies never recovered. They're at Devil's Cauldron. And it was interesting as I, as I stood there and I thought about this scene in front of me. Here's this fence with this warning sign. Do not cross. And over here is this memorial 
to a young man who tragically, because of his foolishness in ignoring that warning, had fallen to his death just a couple years earlier. And I couldn't help but think as I looked at this scene in front of me of this series that we've been in in the book of Judges over the last three months. You know, I thought to myself, that, that warning sign there attached to the fence, that, that, that's a lot like the law that God had given the nation of Israel. God had given his, his people his will and his, his plans and his purposes for them. He had, he had made clear the boundary lines. I'm going to bring you into this promised land, and I'm going to bless you abundantly, and everything there will be yours, but you have to follow my will and my ways and, and follow me in obedience. And he had established those boundaries for their good, and yet, just like that memorial cross under the tree, Israel, in their folly, had chosen to ignore God's will and chosen time and time again to do life the way that they thought was best instead of honoring God's ways in his revealed truth. And we've seen throughout our series how Israel repeatedly falls in their sin and depravity into God's judgment as a result of their disobedience. Now today, as we come to the conclusion of our series here in the book of Judges, we need to recognize that Again, God has given us this book as a cautionary reminder of the danger of our rebellious hearts. But he's also given us this book as an encouragement to remind us of his promise that true life and abundance and joy is is only found when we walk in obedience to him. And and these are the lessons we're going to see again as we come to the concluding chapters of the book of Judges, Judges 19 through 21. As we saw in that video a moment ago, this last section is a very disturbing account of what happens to God's people when they turn their backs on the Lord and choose to live life on their own terms, the way they think is best. We're going to read, to begin with this morning, Judges chapter 19. This is really the setting that sets up all the events that take place in the final chapters, chapters 20, 21. I want to read our passage, Judges 19, this morning, and then I want to come back and I want to share some reflections for us on this passage about what happens when a people no longer fear the Lord. Let's take a look at this disturbing section of God's Word. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite who was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him for three days." So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night, and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. 
And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. This man was trying to lavish this Levite with, you know, hospitality and welcome and, and overt graciousness because in that culture, it was a great shame upon their family for what his daughter had done, this concubine leaving her husband. And so he's trying to restore some of his family's honor by lavishing this hospitality. Verse 10, but the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite of Jabus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jabus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners, who do not belong to the people of God, but we will pass on to Gebeah. And he said to his young man, Come, and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gebeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gebeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gebeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at the evening, and the man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gebeah. The men of the place were Benjamites, and he lifted up his eyes, and he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord. But no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys, with bread and wine for me and your female servant, and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you, I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out to you now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. Her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the door of the house and went out to be on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. 
And all who saw it said such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it. Take counsel and speak. What a horrific story. You know, when you first read this account, it leads you to ask the question, why in the world is a story like this in the Bible? Why didn't God include a passage like this? And what we see here in this passage, friends, what we need to remember when we look at troubling sections of Scripture like this is that God is not glorifying the actions that took place in this sordid story. That's not what this is about, but rather God has given us this story and troubling stories like it that can be found in the Scriptures. He's given them to us for our instruction for our guidance, for our counsel. In fact, the Apostle Paul, commenting on some of these troubling Old Testament stories in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, Paul tells us the reason why God gave them to us. Paul says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. See, there's a, there's a lesson here for us that God wants us to learn. And so he gives us these tragic, horrendous, horrific historical accounts so that we might learn from the mistakes of the people of Israel. Passages like the one we've just read here have been given to us by God to shock us into an awareness of our own potential for depravity and to remind us of the dire consequences of living in rebellion against him. And so, friends, as much as we're repulsed by this story, we need to force ourselves to look into its horrors so that we might learn the important lessons that God has for us here in this passage. Now, the key for our understanding of this passage is actually found in the very last verse of the book of Judges. If you have your Bibles, you might turn to the end of chapter 21, verse 25, and there in the final verse of the book of Judges, here is the key to interpreting this story. In those days, there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And friends, our passage this morning is really a roadmap to the calamitous end of a nation that has turned their back on God and chosen to run a course that is right in their own eyes. Understand this this morning, friends. This passage is a dire warning for all of us. And I want us to see three important lessons here in this last section of the book of Judges. What happens when a people no longer fear the Lord? What are the consequences of that? Well, the first thing we see this morning when a people no longer fear the Lord, you see very clearly and quickly the depths of human depravity. The prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 79, speaking to the Israelites in another period of sin and rebellion against the Lord, he spoke to the people on behalf of God. And in Jeremiah 79, we're told that the heart, the human heart, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's our heart, friends. Deceitful above all things and desperately sick. 
Romans 3.10 in the New Testament echoes this reality where the Apostle Paul tells us that there is no one in this world who is righteous. No, not one. Because we are born into this fallen sinful world with hearts that are depraved and wicked and desperately sick. And our passage this morning is one of the clearest depictions of this reality in all of Scripture. The human heart, unmoored from the tether of trust in the Lord and commitment to the Lord, this heart is susceptible to tremendous acts of evil. And we see this right from the outset and throughout all of chapter 19. If you have your Bibles open and you take a look at chapter 19, I mean, what we see here is the reality of humanity's sin run rampant. It starts in verse 1 where we discover here is this Levite who has taken a concubine. Now, if you remember from Old Testament history, the Levites were a people of Israel who had been set apart by the Lord to be the spiritual leaders of the nation. And right off the bat, we discover here's one of the spiritual leaders of Israel who has sinfully taken for himself a concubine. What is a concubine? A concubine is basically a servant that you get to have sex with. It's a woman who serves this man's needs physically and sexually and whatever else he desires of her. She's like a wife, but she doesn't have any legal rights or privileges She's really more of a servant. And and so here is a Levite, a man of God, who is breaking God's covenant of marriage. He's supposed to be the keeper of Israel's morality, and yet here he has a mistress with him. And then we turn to verse 2, and we see the sin continue with this concubine. We discover that she's been unfaithful. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, but Typically, in the biblical language, that refers to an adulterous relationship. And so here this woman may have had an affair with another man, and she ends up leaving her master, her husband, and running home to her father's house for four months. The man goes to return and take back his concubine, and he ends up leaving with his concubine to head home. And on their way home, they stop in Gebeah. And in verse 15, we discover the sin and depravity continue. The people of Gebeah refuse to care for these travelers. Here they are in the town square. They're far from home. They're looking for hospitality and lodging, and no one in Gebeah comes to their aid. And we see here the widespread lack of compassion at this time in the land of Israel. God had told the people of Israel in the Old Testament when they go into the promised land to care for the stranger and the alien who is sojourning among them. And yet God's people had turned their back on these needy travelers. And the evil continues in verse 22. After they're brought into the house, not of a man from Gibeah, but from another traveler, an Ephraimite, The men of Gibeah show up that night and they knock on the door and they demand to have their way with the Levite. Not his concubine. They want to have their way with the Levite. They say, let him come out to us so that we might know him. The word know in the Hebrew is yada. It means to have sexual intercourse or intimate knowledge of someone. This is homosexual gang rape that they're trying to engage in here. It's very interesting to look at the similarity of our passage this morning with Genesis chapter 19 and the story of Sodom. It's almost a word-for-word equivalent, that horrific story of God's two angelic messengers who come to Lot in Sodom, this pagan Canaanite city. 
And the men of Sodom come and they demand to have sex with these two visitors. It was an act so horrific that God rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom. And from that day forth, the entire world has associated the name Sodom with the perversion of homosexual sex. That's how serious this was in God's eyes. Here now, Israel has become just as wicked as the Canaanites in Sodom. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 tells us that widespread social acceptance of homosexuality is the evidence of a people who have been given over by God to their sin and depravity. Paul says it's a sign of judgment upon a nation. You can't help but wonder if our own nation is under God's judgment today as a result of our widespread acceptance of these things that God has clearly called sin. Verses 24 and 25, the evil continues. The old man and the Levite offer their women up to abuse in order to save themselves. Here we see the pathetic devaluation of women in Israel at this time, where women are viewed as being nothing more than commodities to be used in whatever way benefits men. Not only do we see the devaluation of women, but we also see here the devaluation of manhood because God had called men to be the protectors and providers of women. And instead of protecting and providing for their women, they're sending them out to be raped. It's horrific. In verses 25 and 26, we read that the men of Gibeah sexually abused this concubine all night long to the point of death. It's almost unimaginable to think about the horror that this woman would have experienced that night. The depravity, the evil. In verse 28, we see the Levite's cheap view of life as he treats his battered concubine like a dog. He barks at her in the morning, get up. Of course, her lifeless body couldn't get up, and so he throws her on the back of his donkey. And in verse 29, we see that the Levite takes her home, and instead of seeking justice according to God's law, he ends up dismembering his concubine in a callous act for the sake of vengeance, which would ultimately lead to civil war in Israel. Friends, understand, everything we see here is the fruit of humanity's sinful hearts run wild. This is the tragic end of rebellion against God. And, and the warning for us here is that this is the inevitable trajectory of a culture governed not by God, but by what's right in our own eyes. And when you understand this reality, friends, you can begin to understand how our own culture today has ended up in the moral freefall that we find ourselves in. For the last 150 years, we've been teaching young people in our schools that they're nothing but animals evolved out of slimy algae. That there is no God, there is no absolute truth. Truth is subjective and relative. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. As a result of this, our culture has tragically embraced a politically correct tolerance that says you have to uncritically accept all people in the areas of their beliefs, their practices, their lifestyle. And if you don't, you will quickly be labeled intolerant, bigoted, narrow-minded, judgmental, a whole host of names that our culture will call those who dare to stand for God's truth and God's righteousness. And of course, this has led us into the moral anarchy that we find today where even historically family-friendly co companies like Disney are now promoting overt homosexuality and gender confusion. 
God help our nation, friends. Culture is simply worldview externalized. What a person thinks and believes about God will manifest itself in their life, and the same holds true for cultures at large. We need to understand this morning that spiritual compromise always results in the destruction of the moral fiber of a nation. This is witnessed in the disintegration of marriage, the devaluation of the traditional family, the cheapening of human life, then in the decay of morality in society, seen in an increase in crime, political strife, social anarchy, cultural apathy, and then finally in the fall of the nation itself. Friends, this is always the inevitable end for a people who reject God. And this is the tragedy that continues to unfold for Israel as we continue on into chapter 20 and 21. What happens when a people no longer fear the Lord? Well, secondly, we see the inevitable breakdown of society. Now, we're not going to take time to read these last two chapters this morning. I'd encourage you to go home and do so on your own. But I want to summarize for us what takes place. As our story unfolds in chapter 20, Israel descends into a brutal civil war leading to overt genocide against the tribe of Benjamin. Verses 46 and 48 of chapter 20 tell us that 400,000 Israelites muster together to go against the tribe of Benjamin in, in, in revenge over what took place in Gebeah. Now think about the irony of this. Last week, two weeks ago in the story of Samson, the Israelites wouldn't rally around Samson to fight against the Philistines, but now they all rally together to kill their own tribemen, tribesmen. And in verses 46 through 48, we discover that 25,000 men, women, and children from the tribe of Benjamin are killed with only 600 Benjamite men surviving. Israel has answered brutality with even greater brutality. And you have to ask, how could this happen? How is this any kind of justice? But again, friends, we need to remember, Israel was simply doing what was right in their own eyes. See, remember, when, when concepts like truth and justice are no longer rooted in the timeless will in character of God, all you're left with are the subjective and arbitrary determinations of finite, sinful men and women. And in a morally relativistic culture, at the end of the day, everything ultimately devolves into a quest for power. Reason and persuasion no longer matter because without God, there can be no absolute truth to discover or know or guide us. And so all that matters ultimately in a relativistic culture is who's in power, who's in control, who gets to make the rules. And in this kind of society, it's typically the most cunning or the one who shouts the loudest or the guy with the biggest gun who gets to make the rules. Friends, do you wonder how a nation like America can witness everything that we've seen take place in the last two years? Black Lives Matter, protesters destroying cities across the country, radical groups like Antifa taking over entire city blocks in violation of police and local law. We saw supporters of our former president storm the U.S. Capitol building. 
We've seen governors expand state power through executive mandates, trampling on individual liberties. We've seen major media outlets pushing their favored propaganda. I could go on and on with examples. How does this happen? Friends, it happens when a society no longer fears the Lord and thus no longer has a moral compass to guide them. Understand this this morning. When there is no such thing as absolute truth, all that matters is power. And friends, God has warned us here in Scripture where that leads. The question is, will we heed his warning? Will we listen to his guidance? This leads me to our third point this morning. When a people no longer fear God, you see self-salvation's bankruptcy. This is the point of Judges 20:21. Following the depravity of chapter 19 and the genocide of chapter 20, you would think that Israel might finally turn to the Lord for guidance. But no. Sadly, they don't. Instead, in chapter 21, we read of the ongoing fall of Israel as they continue to do what's right in their own eyes. But now, in an attempt to remedy the atrocities they've committed against the tribe of Benjamin. So Israel has now nearly obliterated an entire tribe of their own people. And what's their solution to the problem? The solution to their problem in chapter 21, well, we're going to go find wives for these 600 remaining Benjamites so that they can rebuild their tribe. Well, how are they going to do this? Well, the people of Israel decide, well, we're going to go raid another Israelite village, the village of Jabesh-Gilead, because they didn't help us in our war against the Benjamites. So we're going to go raid that tribe. And so Israel sends men, and they kill everyone in that tribe, and they take for them 400 virgin girls. They kidnap these girls and force them to serve as wives for the Benjamites. This is absolutely horrific. But, but it gets even worse. They're, they're 200 girls short for the remaining 600 Benjamite men. And, and so what do they do now? Well, we need 200 more women. Well, so they give these remaining Benjamite men the permission to go and kidnap from the city of Shiloh 200 more virgin girls so that they can all have a wife and rebuild the tribe of Benjamin. This is Israel's solution to the genocide they've committed against their own people. This is insane. But again, it's the natural end of a people who do not fear God and simply live according to what's right in their own eyes. Friends, understand this entire story is meant to illustrate for us the stark reality that humanity can never save ourselves from the consequences of our rebellion against God. There's no human solution to the problem caused by our sinful, wicked hearts. There's no government. There's no military. There's no science that can rescue us from the spiritual disease that plagues us and plagues our nation. And so once again, we come to the final words of the book of Judges, Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Friends, everything we've seen in the book of Judges the past three months has pointed us to the striking reality that God's people need a king. We need a king. But not just any king. We need a righteous king. 
We need a king that can save us from our moral depravity and our spiritual bankruptcy. And friends, today, Palm Sunday, today the good news that God declares to the world is that hope has arrived. The king has come. As the prophet Isaiah declares in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 and 6, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Friends, understand this morning, there's only one true source of hope for this world. There's only one true source of hope for our nation. There's only one true source of hope for each and every one of us here this morning. His name is Jesus. Where is peace with God found? Where is peace for our nation found? Friends, it's only found when we humble ourselves before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As God tells us in 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Let's pray this morning and ask for God's help and blessing. Lord, we so desperately need you. Our nation so desperately needs you. Our world so desperately needs you. We are living in days where we are seeing more clearly than ever the consequences of our sin and our rebellion and our depravity. And we are reliving everything we have seen in the book of Judges. Our hearts are desperately wicked and sick. And there is only one hope for this world. It is not government, it is not science, it is not military might. It is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace. It is Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would begin with us individually, with our own hearts, turning them back to you in humility and obedience, walking in faithfulness. Help us to lead the way here in our own community as, as your people, Lord. Help us to show the world the, the life and joy that comes from living in obedience to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, we pray for our nation that there might be a spiritual revival that would break out. God, our nation is so lost and so sick in our depravity. There is no hope for this country apart from Jesus. God, may the church rise up in boldness and speak words of truth and hope and salvation to a land that so desperately needs you today. Forgive us of our sins and humble our hearts before you, Lord. May we trust you and walk in obedience with you. We pray for our world today, Lord, that the light of the gospel would shine brightly through your church around the world, revealing to the world the hope that has come in the, in the person of Jesus Christ the one who forgives us of our sins and brings us back into a right relationship with God and shows us the way to experience life and life abundant. 
You are our only hope, Lord. We humbly come before you this morning and we ask for your mercy. We thank you for giving us your word to guide us. Help us, Jesus, to walk in faithfulness to you. We pray this in your great name. Amen. Well, again, friends, I want to invite you to join us this weekend as we continue our celebration of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Good Friday at 7 p.m., Easter Sunday, 729 and 1040. It's going to be a great weekend. If any of you would like prayer this morning, some of our elders and Stephen ministers will be here at the front of the sanctuary. We would be glad to pray with you. Let me close with this benediction from the book of 2 Peter. Please rise. And now grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you, friends, and have a great Holy Week. Hi, everybody. Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church. You can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free. And you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests. And we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage. And we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.